Hello, this is Father David Nix at the Padre Peregrino podcast. I'm very glad tonight to be joined by my old friend, Mike. Mike is a retired high-ranking naval official who served nearly 30 years as a highly decorated Navy SEAL officer. He commanded SEAL teams and counter-terrorist task forces in crisis and contingency operations through 13 deployments, including those to Bosnia, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Southeast Asia. The majority of his career was spent in the military's special operations counter-terrorist community, which includes SEAL Team 6, the CIA, the National Security Agency, and many other organizations whose operations often require presidential decision-making. Uh, this missions, the missions he was on rather, gave him occasional access and insight into the politics of national security decisions made at the highest levels of the U.S. government. Mike, great to see you again and have you on my podcast. Father, great to see you again. Thanks for having me on tonight. You know, um, Mike, to my listeners, Mike's a few inches shorter than me. And Mike, I never told you about this, but when I was in a parish on the East Coast and I first met you in the pastoral council, I looked over and I thought, huh, this, this quiet little guy must be a pediatrician or something. Tur turns out Mike... Mike can kill me by just looking at me as a top-ranking Navy SEAL. So I uh, never told you about that. Folks, TCE stands for uh, Theology and Current Events. This is a TCE 15 Navy SEAL Speaks on the State of the Church. In all honesty, that's to gel with TE TCE 16, which is going to be Mike speaking about the state of the state. But it's not exactly the state of the church. So don't get too pumped for really controversial stuff. Tonight's going to be a little bit more on virtue Almost we could stay, say that Mike's going to speak on the state of the domestic church. Um, and then also just for my listeners, we're going to get back to the VLX and CPX during Easter week. Next week during Holy Week, I have a special Stations of the Cross for you to meditate on. And please subscribe if you're new. Now, Mike is a convert. Mike is a convert to the Catholic faith. And before we get to his time as a Navy SEAL, um, Mike, would you tell us about your conversion? And I think your conversion was in the SEAL. So maybe if you could integrate uh, what brought you. Yeah, maybe tell, tell us a little bit first what brought you into the SEALs, why you wanted to do it, how buds went, and what brought you into the Catholic faith. I know that's a lot to talk about there, but just. Yeah, sure thing, Father. No, I'm a, I'm a mid, sort of a midlife adult convert. I was in my early 30s. Uh, and, and interestingly enough, I was on sabbatical from the SEAL teams going through graduate school. And so. Um, primed to search for truth in many areas, but in particular religious truth. And so my, my path to conversion was first realizing that Christianity was important. Uh, so, and then I eventually started with, with, with authors like C.S. Lewis, and then I, then, I be, then I fortunately had an old friend who was able to point me in the right direction. Once I began to explore the arguments for the truth of Catholicism, it was like every, every uh, so many people have commented that so many, all the locks came unlocked at once and the door swung open. <clears throat> it, was, it was an intellectual approach to religious truth and an, an intellectual conviction that Catholicism was true. Now, when I went out into the field to sort of explore what it really looked like out there, um, the only answer was those communities that celebrated the traditional Latin mass. Uh, I found that um, all other expressions of Catholicism, in particular the Novus Ordo uh, in, the, in the liberal diocese that I lived in, it was no different from Presbyterianism or Methodism or anything <laughs> or, or anything like that. Uh, so I would say the connection between my career as a Navy SEAL and my conversion is, I, I don't think it's, um, it, it's not as strong as you might imagine. It's not a foxhole type thing. Sure. Um, 
<clears throat> it was, but what is interesting, it happened right before we went to war in 2001. Uh, so <laughs> I, I think that there is, a, I think that's an act of grace. And when you but said C.S. Lewis, was the Lord Liar Lunatic <clears throat> thing, kind of those syllogisms central to some of these conversion decisions? Uh, more more the uh, the mere Christianity type of arguments uh, <clears throat> that that's just strengthened strengthened my sort of uh, the, the conviction of my DNA that Christianity is a place to look and that's at least for the, for the field to start in yeah uh, yep right that's right yeah but I grew up I grew up uh, in an Eastern Orthodox uh, sect uh, it's a you know a religion with with a valid priesthood and valid sacraments and uh, and long liturgies and that kind of thing, so I knew what real worship uh, from a, from a youth. I knew what real worship looked like. Um, yeah. But then, you know, when you leave home, you sort of drift away, and uh, and I became essentially a worldling or neo pagan for until in my early thirties. And so you weren't too convicted of orthodoxy, either big O orthodoxy or even small O orthodoxy, as a kid, huh? One thing to no, not at all, because as everyone. Well, as many have commented, orthodoxy, it's confusing whether it's the worship of God uh, or the worship of your ethnicity, mm. especially in the, in the diaspora. You know, these various orthodox churches, whether it's Russian or, or um, wherever it might be, it's, it's not clear where you stop, um, where the ethnicity or the nationalism stops and the devotion to God begins. What was it like in the SEAL teams as far as religion 30 years ago and now, like, what did you find? Is it just kind of pure paganism and heathenism? Or was there a point where there was lots of Christians and now new age? Or have you noticed a difference in the average seal? Uh, yeah, I have noticed a difference in the, during my career, it has become more, um, uh, I've definitely seen more Christians of, of various uh, confessions mm -hmm. in the, in the mid eighties, in the mid to late eighties, when I joined the seal teams and I became a young seal, and there was no, it was, a. there was absolutely no religious connection. It was not immoral so much as amoral. No, mm -hmm. it, it just, it just wasn't, you know, there was yep. nothing there, but it seems like as, as the decades have progressed and more and more people are compelled to choose between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, it has affected seals as well. Like more people are going either far right or far left. That's not the right term, but there's, there are, I mean, who was it? Um, Father Jim Altman was telling me that he met a bunch of good Catholic seals down in San Diego. So uh, it sounds like there's some guys finding our Lord and finding the traditional faith in the seal teams. Yeah, I, I believe that's true. That's uh, yeah, very much so. I mean, it's, a, it's gone from a drip drip to maybe a trickle. Okay, that's, that's good. I mean, this, <laughs> people say 2020 stands for vision of 2020. And it is true that a lot of, a lot of fence riding got knocked one way or the other last year, it seems. Um, now, Mike, it, you know, you, you entered kind of through some of these traditional communities into the Catholic faith. There's a lot of people nowadays who are looking at all of these doctrinal scandals and a lot of the priest-child scandals and everything, and there are people who are going to orthodoxy, or um, some people are even going atheist from traditional Catholicism. Has the effeminacy in the hierarchy and the scandals and the doctrinal confusion that you see, uh, has that ever made you think to lead the church or maybe, maybe a little less personal question besides, I mean, cause like Cardinal Newman said, a thousand difficulties doesn't equal one doubt. Um, what would your advice be to people out there who are so fed up with the effeminacy in the hierarchy? What would you as a Navy SEAL say to those people at this point? 
Or maybe For a better sure. question is, did, did that ever shake the wheels in the back of your bus and becoming Catholic? As, was this ever embarrassing to go from, you know, the most elite teams to then reading that your new team has made, usually when it makes the news, it's not the best news. <laughs> Well, first of all, let me, you know, you're absolutely right that there is there's scandal and there's effeminacy and there's things that, have, that are definitely to be regretted out there in the Catholic field. During the first couple, three years of my conversion, I, I, I would uh, take my family to a Novus Ordo Mass in the morning, uh, and then I would go by myself to a, uh, an SSPX Mass in the afternoon. Uh, and, I, and I did that because, uh, well, there's logistics reasons and, and, and those kinds of things. And the contrast between the two is just so stark. Uh, Fortunately, I mean, God has always uh, allowed me to have access to the traditional mass and sacraments. Even if it requires a little bit of work, but I, my my belief in the truth of the Catholic faith and all its doctrines and dogmas began at an intellectual level, and so in almost a deductive fashion. Once you realize that this authority is worthy of uh, of your obedience and trust, uh, and that they speak the truth, you can make allowances for, you know, the certain modern local deviations. But then, you know, it opens up a whole nother can of worms, Father, because there's a good reason why the Catholic Church looks like this today. I mean, it's, it goes back in prophecy back through the 19th century. I mean, this just doesn't happen out of nowhere. Well, um, what would you say that was? What were these pro- <laughs> what's the prophecies you think about the most? Well, I mean, all the, all the way from, from Lourdes to, uh, uh, to Fatima, to, um, to Akita, uh, and, and just many others. And they all, they are, in fact, going all the way back to Quito, Ecuador, you know, 400 some odd years ago. I mean, it's it's uh, it's just remarkable how uh, how, how prophetic, how uh, accurately prophetic Our Lady's uh, appearances and, and, and you know have been. And so you can you can explain why it's happening. You can see it unfolding. You can see history, uh, uh, you know, ecclesiastic, ecclesiological history. I'm sorry, unfolding uh, in real time in front of you. Just like it says in in a Jack, almost like a Jack Chicks comic book that you got, you know, and, and that kind of like. You know, this is why I'll do a little aside. When I was, you know, when I when I read a Jack, you know, you know Jack Chicks, right? Jack Chick, the, the guy, the anti-Catholic yeah, guy who writes yeah. the books. Yeah, yeah, he, he writes all these like Armageddon sort of stuff. You're like, that's right. absolutely fantastic. That none of that could ever happen, but it's but it's kind of happening, you know. Well, and, and I like the fact that you mentioned like uh, Keto and Akita or Keto Ecuador and Akita because. I think there's a lot of normie Catholics who hear us t- Catholics are traditional normie Catholics hear us traditional Catholics talk about these and it sounds really dark and everything, but really it's actually super positive because, because if you're like, okay, our lady warned us at keto, La Salette, Fatima and Akita that things would be a mess. We can't really get mad at God and be like, you never told us, you know, <laughs> our lady in every single apparition was like at the human level, at the exterior level, things are going to look really bad. And so the fulfillment of that prophecy, I find to be really good news. I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned Keto Ecuador. Here Our Lady shows us, she actually names the century 500 years ahead of time that all the sacraments would get tanked. Um, you look at probably the best evidence of Fatima that this was going to be apostasy from the top down. Well, that's pretty bad news, but the, the, it really shows how much heaven loves us, that heaven continued to warn us about what we were going to see. So I agree. I think that's all the more reason to stay in the Catholic Church that um, we were told there would be this infiltration into the church, you know, but you know, Jack Chick is a super anti-Catholic guy, right? Oh yeah. 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 Okay. But he, I mean, actually surprisingly, he had a, he had an uh, effect on me uh, when I was in about fifth grade or so. Oh, what you was know, that? Looked, 
I, for some reason, I get a hold of a few of his comic books and I, and I read them and I was just fascinated by the all the discussions of prophecy and Armageddon and that kind of stuff. And I thought it was the mark of the beast in the 666 business. I thought it was so outlandish. How could this ever come to pass? But really, in a strange sort of twisted sort of way, it is coming to pass. You don't mean that's the church. You just mean globally. I mean, I mean, the development of human events. That, yeah, that's exactly. I mean. yeah, 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 right. No, I was at World Youth Day here in Denver in 1993 with Pope John Paul II. And I remember Jack Chick Tricks, Jack Chick Tracks were getting handed out everywhere. Yeah. They may have even been dropping them out of airplanes on us because they knew where there was going to be like 100,000 Catholic kids. So that was my first experience with the Jack Chick Tracks was World Youth Day. I think I was 15, 14 years old, 1993 um, here in Denver. But, uh, but Mike, so... You know, there's a reaction against this effeminacy that sometimes seems in the Catholic world to be this macho approach to masculinity. There was a guy here in Denver, actually, he was a Marine who taught up in Fort Collins. I think he's out in Atlanta now, but he wrote a really interesting article called Wimps and Barbarians. And he basically his thing was men these days are going to one of the two uh, opposites, either being a wimp or a barbarian. And I think the, the happy medium is is being a gentleman. And that doesn't mean when people talk about, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas has often misquoted the, the, the virtues and the mean. Well, that doesn't mean the bell curve mean between two, um, two vices. It's more the mountain between two valleys. And so when we talk about a gentleman being between being a wimp and barbarian, that doesn't mean a gentleman's a half wimp and a half barbarian. It means the gentleman is avoiding being both a barbarian and a wimp. So this is kind of a rambly question and tell me if it's, it's a hard one to answer, but what do you think needs to happen in male formation and raising good men? Uh, so they don't, doesn't go like just jumping over a fire naked out in the forest, like some of these men's Catholic retreats do. Uh, but also isn't just sitting around sharing your feelings. Do you have any suggestions? Not the best question there, but. No, I, I, I agree with you in one sense in that both the wimp, and the barbarian sort of template are both the same. They're just different aspects of the same error. And the error is, and it may have been C.S. Lewis who called who called them um, who called our era the era of hollow-chested men. Yes. Uh, and, and they're both they're both sort of compensations against men who are either um, who completely lack confidence and so we resort to passivity, uh, or who lack confidence and so compensate by being overly, you know demonstrative in terms of machoism, right? They're both, they're, they're both products, not so much of a uh, defective religious culture, but you could make that argument, but I think much more just sort of the cultural toxin that we swim in, which is, um, which, which is, which is luxury and security and men are not allowed to be men because there's no challenges for them. I, I can remember growing up in my sort of working class home being an avid reader uh, and reading about heroes and generals and statesmen and this and all these great things. And I looked around at, at my life and how the men around me lived and uh, they weren't, they weren't immoral by any means, but there was, what, what did they do? You know, what was, there was no echo of that in my, in the, in the, uh, in the culture that I grew up in the seventies and the eighties. And it's even true today. I mean, your average, your average man, what does he, um, what does he do to actually build confidence himself as a as a man? 
you know, he, he goes to college maybe and points and clicks for a while and moves information. Uh, not a bad thing, but you can sure. see where it's, def it's deficient in some respects, or he perhaps goes over to hedonism mm -hmm. uh, in a, uh, in a sort of materialistic or, you know, uh, to gratify his, his senses. And so, you know, but then he, he lacks the experience about making decisions and judgment and that kind of thing. So we just don't build as a culture. We just yeah. don't give men the opportunity to build themselves. And what would you suggest for young men who are Catholic to grow in virtue, um, to get out of that comfort zone? Um, you know, there's things like Exodus 90, which I'm actually really impressed with. We don't see a lot of people in the traditional Catholic world doing it, but I'm, I'm very much a fan of the Exodus 90 because precisely because it's cold showers and it's, and it's fasting and it's, you know, um, so I think that's one possible answer. Can you think of anything else in the formation of men that needs to happen, especially in families? What, what should fathers yeah. be teaching their sons yep. to get them out of this comfort zone? Cause you're right. I mean, we, I call them the three H's health, hygiene, and heat, health, hygiene, and heat. You and I have the opportunity. I don't know what you do. You probably go run around in the snow as a seal all the time, but your average person has more health, hygiene, and heat than a 19th century king, than an 18th century king, than a 17th century king. We have even, even some middle class, even lower class in this country has more health, hygiene, and heat than any king or queen before the 19th century. And that's not our fault, but we have to push against it somehow, right? Yeah, that, so you, your initial quote, you're absolutely right. And, uh, and, and one of the, I think one of the, uh, misconceptions is that you can somehow harden yourself and train yourself to uh to to um to kind of transcend these luxuries like health and hygiene and because when when you go out there around the snow for example uh, as you put it ultimately you can say stop you're in control mm. uh, it doesn't it doesn't get hard <laughs> until you're not in control anymore yeah. uh and and so i would say instead of i'd rephrase the question instead of what would, what would you tell young men i would say what would I tell mothers out there who are the mothers of young men? Mm. Because that, that is, I think that, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the decisive point in that, you know, parents, mothers, especially because mothers are especially in the young formative years. I mean, there's just so much sheltering going on. You know, I, it's funny, you know, example, who hasn't been to the, the four-year-old t-ball game at the local YMCA or the, the, four, the soccer game? And after like eight minutes of exertion, everybody stopped coming to get snacks and juice boxes and Cheetos and stuff, all that stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's just symptomatic of, it's just, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, if, you know, if you think about the, the legends of the Spartan, the Spartan moms, you know, come home with your shield or on it. Now it's a little wow. bit over the it's a little over the top, but yeah. we need we need a lot more of yeah. that than we than we do juice boxes and Cheetos. Yeah, you think of the Maccabee mom, right? I mean, she wouldn't let her kids even have the slightest appearance of eating pork, the slightest appearance of not being kosher. She was encouraging them to go die on this enormous frying pan, which they did. You know, um, that's a that's a great example. So what drew you to the SEAL teams as a young man in, in high school? Was it something of being out of control of your life in that? Or no, I didn't even hear. <clears throat> yeah, I didn't even hear the SEAL teams when I was in high school. It wasn't fact till my undergraduate um, experience. Uh, I knew I wanted to be a naval officer. And um, mm -hmm. because my grand my grandfather was a Navy vet, and he just sort of pushed me in that direction. Um, but, you know, when I you know, I explored being a uh, fighter pilot and uh, being a Marine Corps officer, which is a naval officer. 
and and some other things. And uh, I, I can't explain, I cannot explain what turned me towards the seals other than a desire for real authentic experience and not managing a platform with switches or um, uh, kind of being stood off a little bit from the real experience of war, which is just so much of what, yeah. what the modern, you know, what a war fighting uh, uh, experience is today. Uh, that, that's all I can really explain. Just a sense, a gut, a gut sense that that was the most authentic way to get um, the experience of combat and war. And interestingly, when I joined the SEAL teams, they were marginal. They were completely marginal. I had, I had a, I had a very senior officer tell me at the time, you're throwing, you know, you're throwing away your career right now by picking the SEALs. Um, really? Because they never got, yeah, they were not important. They never got promoted. You know, Vietnam was in the past. Oh, gotcha. So for, Frogmen was only a, a term everybody loved in the past, what, 10, 15, 20 years? It's frogman is an older term and it probably yeah. goes back to the sort of the, uh, the amphibious, right? that's right. The amphibious origin uh, of the of UDT teams and, and the frogman. I should just call this podcast frogman one and frogman two. <laughs> <laughs> it's surprising how, how much seals are not in the water these days. But, uh, uh, <laughs> now, Mike, you mentioned confidence and I, you, you probably would laugh if I described seals as humble because you've probably seen a lot more arrogance than just what I've seen on like podcasts and stuff. And I know you avoid a lot of the, uh, the celebrity seal culture. I think I, I think you didn't even know who Jocko Willink was. And I watched, but you know, when he had on a, a Johnny Kim, I was, I was pretty impressed with their humility in the sense. And, you know, people often say, if you walk into a bar, maybe a low ranking army guy want to fight you or something, but the seal already knows he can just, destroy you so he has nothing to prove and so there is a reputation of seals having a certain level of humility maybe it's not humility maybe it's a meekness but i just want to see if you could maybe connect these two virtues of three virtues um trust or confidence in god self-confidence but a healthy level not like the new age self-confidence but just a healthy level of self-confidence and then humility um i don't know personally i'm i'm impressed with how seals combine self-confidence and humility um, and then the Christian ones can combine confidence in God and humility. But maybe at the general level, how how should people combine those two in their life? Because at the very cursory or superficial level, it seems like those two virtues are contrary to each other, right? But they're but the but the Christian virtue of humility and then and this idea of humbleness, yeah. humility on a natural level are directly related. And I'll give you a, an analogy: is you know, you know, a, a real, you know, a Catholic will be or should be uh, humble because he has fallen and he's fallen many, many, many times. And he knows how easily it is for him to fall, uh, to fall again, knows he probably will. Uh, and so in the same way, here's the analogy with those who are in not only the seals, but who do extreme things is they, they run up against the edge where I see where it's bad enough that I could quit and give up, where I could roll over and, and get into a fetal position. I've been close to that. Uh, I know what the fear of death looks like because I've been close to that in some cases. And so you know, you have a real sense for your human limitations. Even, even the idea of a, of a bar fight, for example, and because you, you started to use that. And that's interesting. The uh, People who've been in real fights know that there's, there's, it's, there's never a winner. Both sides are getting bloody. And you may be the guy who, <laughs> who slashed, you know, across the throat. It doesn't work like it does in the movie where one guy takes on 10, beats 10, 12 people. It doesn't work. Everyone gets bloody and beat up. And so I guess when you, when you know 
when you have that real authentic experience that that's how it works, you tend to be pretty humble about your position and let you realize, you know, I'm not a superhero. <laughs> I, and I need to exercise good judgment here in order to stay alive. Yeah. That's maybe why I thought you were a pediatrician when I first met you from the <laughs> pastoral council, because <laughs> you didn't come out and be like, yeah, I'm Mike seal, you know, seal team six or whatever. It was, uh, um, you know, that's a good segue into another question I did. I wanted to ask you is it seems like, you know, we describe the traditional world right now as a circular firing line because everyone has their pet project and everyone's attacking each other. You've spent some time in SSPX and FSSP. I've gone all the way from the charismatic movement to doing Latin mass exclusively now. And, um, but this line that the trad world is like this circular firing line and people disagree. It's, it's, it'd be easy for me to sit here and say, we all disagree on unimportant issues. That's not really true. I mean, there's a lot, there's, there's a divide right down the middle, which traditionalists even believe who is Pope right now. So these are, these are important issues. I don't mean to sideline these as unimportant issues, but one of the hazards of this living as every man for himself in the traditional world is that we're no longer team players. And I think one of the amazing things about the SEAL teams is their goal isn't to get them home. It's to get your brother home. It's, it's to have the whole team win. And, um, and this is a lot deeper than they're like, there's no I and team or whatever. I mean, the real philosophy of that um, is essentially at its very heart that you guys are the SEAL teams, not a SEAL. How can the traditional world kind of start to look to take care of each other? I don't even know the right question again. I'm giving you bad questions, but hopefully you can get the gist of what I'm laying down. I, I do understand what you're asking. The, um, you know, first off, so it is an undeniable aspect of the traditionalism that there's a certain bitterness, defensiveness, curmudgeonliness. I mean, everybody's noticed and my wife has commented on it. She notices it. Um, it can be off-putting. Uh, it, it may come from a number of places, but one of the places it comes from, I believe, is uh, is just there's a certain spiritual pride that goes with being a traditional Catholic. Like somehow I've I've figured it out and I've got it, and all these other people who are trying, you know, but uh, <clears throat> may go to a different kind of mass. Somehow they're they're less than. So there's a spiritual pride aspect of it, but on a more practical, that's that's where I think produces the uh, the circular firing squad. Mm-hmm. On a more practical level, let's just talk about the build the building of trust, traditional parishes tend to be not geographic, right? They tend to be um, built around the personality of the priest or the, or, you know, the society or fraternity that's, that's giving the priest. And so you have people from all over and they just don't have any contact with each other than a few minutes a week after mass. And so the number one ingredient to build trust is, is contact, repeated contact, proximity, doing things together, doing hard things together uh, to build up that level of trust. You can't do it based on an abstract idea that we've got the right faith here, which also produces spiritual pride, and then, um, and then leave all the middle stuff out and then hope to get along well uh, at the tactical level. It's just, it's just rife. It's a situation rife for mis, you know, misunderstanding, disagreement, so what, what do traditional Catholics need to do? I, you know, I guess I would just start with that idea that trust, you know, you have, trust takes time to build and it, it builds, it has to build on much more than simply a co-parition or spiritual level. That's brilliant. Yeah. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. yeah, you're right. People drive two to three hours 
And then you're exhausted after a two hour drive. I guess families have to be intentional with families. Hey, can you come over and maybe put a little moratorium on super, super complex, controversial topics? And, and I, you know, anyone who listens to my podcast knows that's the last thing I'm going to do is put a moratorium on controversial con, uh, um, topics. But really, may, maybe there is a time just to say, hey, let's let's uh, not debate if there should be a second confidio or who the pope is. Well, let's just get together and have a have a cookout or a barbecue and. And, you know, late at night, 11 p.m. when we're doing whiskey and cigars, we can debate the real the intense stuff. But let's just get the kids together. So I think that's a great point. Um, people need to be intentional because families, we're entering a time and we're going to talk about this in part two with Mike on the state. I think we're entering a time in the country when families are really going to need families as things fall apart. At least that's my belief. Things are going to fall apart. We'll see what Mike has to say about that. But I think him and I both agree. Trad families are going to need trad families. Even Nova Soto families are going to need Nova Soto families. Um as as we're looking at some major changes in our country and church right now what's the number one virtue missing among young catholic men today not just <coughs> not just the traditional world but um what, what are young boys and men if you could inject one virtue into their life right now what would it be i don't know if it's the number one virtue but the virtue that i see missing is is fortitude uh it's it's courage it's a it's a failure to um it's, it's just a failure to stand up what the what the intellect perceives as a Catholic Catholic truth, uh, and a, and a willing to stand up for that in public or even semi private um, semi private sort of uh, uh, gatherings or relationships. And classic example is people who are embarrassed to say grace in a restaurant, or people in a corporate environment who won't challenge the, you know, the woke narrative, for example, and it'll just sort of remain silent. Sometimes there'd be reasons for doing that. Other times they don't do it. They don't do it because they just don't want to put themselves out there. I see it as a lack of fortitude, but, uh, but going back to that idea of humility, I think we all lack fortitude at some level. It's, it's, a, you know, I, I would never want to say that anyone's sort of uh, bomb proof in this regard. That's great. Yeah. Well, and I think you guys probably learn a lot of humility and but I know there's a lot of people who think buds is the end all be all of seals and it's not that's just the weed out part, but you probably get pushed as you said into that fetal position you have to learn how to trust your brothers in all of that. You know, um, Alice von Hildebrand, she had an interesting virtue she said the number one virtue missing among men and women these days, or she said reverence. I thought that was a really interesting one and she meant reverence before God, and even reverence, you know, among each other. Uh, she meant that people don't even have reverence for each other, for old people, for the person of the opposite gender. And one reason we're going to talk in part two about is the military really where young men want to end up with where our country's going. We'll talk about that in part two. But one reason as a whole why I like the military is the ranking system and the manners system is such that you can learn reverence. And it's almost the very last place in the United States, it seems to me, that there is any striation of still holding to rules on manners, how you talk to people, looking people in the eyes, shaking their hands. Um, anything to add to that? No, other than you're right, you're absolutely right. I mean, that uh, I don't want to spill over too much to what we might talk about in the next hour about the state of the U.S. military, but that is that is a very clear and solid, uh, you know, positive characteristic of the military environment, and I. 
and uh, and Alice, Alice von Hildebrand and her generation, I would never want to gain say anything that they say because uh, the, the amount of wisdom there is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's edifying. It really is. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, Father Ripperger says that there's a real problem in the trad movement of lack of humility that he believes leads to a lack of charity and even a lot of falls in chastity. Now, he gave that talk 10 or 15 years ago. I have to admit that I've been very, very edified at what I believe has been a a huge increase in charity and humility in the trad movement the past five years. I guess I've been in it five years. So maybe I should say the past two years, I've been meeting very, very humble and even evangelical trads, trads who want to get out, hand out miraculous medals, serve the poor. Um, so I, I really do believe the future of the traditional movement is more evangelical, more chaste, more humble, more zealous. Um, did I say charitable, more charitable? That's the most important. So um, again, Father Ripperger's talk was, I think, 10 or 15 years ago. He basically said trads have so many falls and chastity because they have no humility. Um, but, you know, I think I think we've taken so many hits the past few years as far as just um, confusion and being sidelined in diocese. And, and like you said, people's own personal falls has led to a lot of a lot of people to give their lives entirely to Christ and say, um, you know, I have to start from the grassroots level here. I can't just say I'm saved because I'm going to the Latin mass. We have a spiritual battle, every one of us, no matter what mass you go to. And uh, humility is going to be the foundation for all of that. For my part, Father, I've seen, I've been most impressed in the last year or so as I've, uh, you know, I, I moved to a different part of the country. So I have an increased contact with, uh, with the Novus Ordo uh, mass and those that attend it regularly. And frankly, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty encouraged by, the level of, you know, the level of commitment and piety, um, clearly commitment to cash, uh, Catholic traditionalism, small t that I see there. Uh, so I, it's just what I, it's just a grace that God, God will, it's it's how God will save His church. And there's a lot of people who weren't too interested in the Latin Mass, but once they found they couldn't actually go to Novus, they found their way to the FSSP or SSPX under COVID. These yeah. lockdowns, these lock, there's a lot, you know, not everybody, but there's a small percentage of Nova Soto people that found the lockdowns insane. And I mean, you look at the percentage of growth of a lot of fraternity parishes and it's 400%, 500%, very, very high. I think some of them over a thousand percent increases uh, because people were like, well, I don't want to go to Latin mass, but I'm sick of, uh, you know, a glob of hand sanitizer in my mouth when I receive the Eucharist. So I'm done with this. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but it's not. I, it just we shouldn't ever. I, I know you know this, but it's, it bears restating. It's not trad mass good, Novus Ordo mass bad. I mean, it's not a it's not a single on off switch here. Like if you're on this side, you're good. You're on this side, you're bad. It is an important factor. It's it can be a reflection. Most importantly, it's it is do. It's the best worship and do worship of Almighty God. But there are many other factors at play, which. Uh, which strengthened Catholic piety. Yeah. Now, when I met you, we were both at a parish on the East Coast that served a lot of military families. I would, I would guess um, <clears throat> it was over 50% military families at this Latin mass parish that I was the number three priest at. I wasn't even uh, pastor number two. I was number three priest out there. Why do you think so many military families are led to the Latin mass? It's, it's, uh, it's just cultural. I mean, it's straight up cultural. It's just uh, there. There is so much um, congruence between a military culture and the culture surrounding the atmospheric surrounding the traditional mass. 
traditional priest formation. Uh, there, you know, the respect, the reverence, as you put it, um, uh, the order, um, the, uh, the 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 inward contemplation versus sort of the outward, uh, you know, uh, expression. Uh, and that's why all those reasons, all those cultural reasons. That's, I think that's important. You mentioned the inner contemplation. I've been thinking back for a long time. That's the most important part of the Latin mass. Why I like it the most, even if I were just a layman, not just a layman, if I were a layman instead of a priest, I think that's something we, we really pass over. We, we debate the Latin, we, we debate which way the priest is facing and stuff. But if you look at the history of the church, the, the interior life was the engine for the exterior life. Um, not just for priests, but even for lay people. And if the interior life is the engine of it all, then it has to be a mass that basically coordinates to the human soul. And that's what I love about the Latin mass is I find that it is that which is coordinates to the human soul the best if we're really called to be contemplatives um, in the world, because from the contemplative life, from the at least from the inner life, and we're very few of us, not me, are reaching these, you know, infused levels of contemplation. Um, but even those very rare tastes of contemplation are more important than anything we do in the exterior life. So um, I don't think most people think of maybe people as contemplatives, but it, it's interesting that you mentioned that because obviously strategy has to come before tactical decisions. The inner life has to come before the exterior and any good military decision, right? Well, here's an interesting factoid is that uh, a survey, a personality survey of the officer corps uh, had a full 40% of officers being highly introverted in the U.S. military. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. And, that, that, and that's just highly introverted. So at mm. one end of the scale, at one end of the scale, we're not talking about the entire spectrum. So this this correlation between introversion, it, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing to explore. However, you know, we should be careful never to say, well, different strokes for different folks, different sure. masses for different tastes, because that's not the measure of a mass. Yeah. Still, still, yeah. you got, you asked the, the question about culture, the cultural connection yeah. between military and, yeah, and that's how I would approach it. And you, yeah, you and I would agree the, the Latin mass is the best. And I think we would also agree that you're going to have saints at the Novus Order and we're going to have some doofuses at the Latin mass. I think that was your main point on that. Now, when I had you speak to the youth group out there, whatever, five or six years ago, I think there were some great questions from the kids, but then I asked you, what was the number one virtue that, that was identified in the men who made it through buds? And you had to think for a minute, maybe you told me afterwards, because you were kind of going through the upstairs Rolodex for a while. And then I think you came up to me afterwards and you said, the guys who can take care of the task at hand. And I was really convicted at that because, you know, we always have a thousand things coming at us. I, I personally believe my virtue would be too hundred percent higher. If I could just wait till 8 PM to get back to all the texts. Like I don't even get back to emails. I'm sorry to my listeners. I don't even get back to emails. I have texts coming in all day. I really think my virtue would be a lot, lot, lot higher. If I just waited to get back to all my texts at 8 PM. I think you do that. I notice you get back to all my texts, but sometimes it's 24 hours later. What do you have to say about just growing in virtue with taking care of the task at hand? Is that still something five years later you'd suggest to people? Yeah, I believe it even more, and I'm going to add a sort of corollary to that. The uh, just for context, the, uh, the the father has mentioned Bud's training. Bud's training is the basic SEAL training pipeline. The attrition is about 80 uh, percent in that particular course. Uh, these are young officers, young Navy officers, young Navy sailors who try out, and a, new, a number of studies have attempted to identify what makes somebody succeed and persevere through this difficult training. 
the only factor that they've been able to identify or come close to identifying is the ability to compartmentalize, you know, your challenges. So in, if you are faced right now with a four mile, you know, beach timed beach run, and you know that after that, you're going over the obstacle course and that's going to be an hour and a half thrash. And then in the afternoon, you're going to have to do that, that dreaded underwater swim. You're going to be overwhelmed. You know, you're going to have trouble getting through the first event. But if you focus and compartmentalize on getting through just what I'm doing, I just have to do this four mile beach run uh, in X number of minutes. And then whatever happens after that happens after that. It's going to happen or not happen. That seems to be the factor. Uh, and so you and I at the time talked about the idea of St. Therese and her little way. And just just do what is in front of you. Right. Because right. because people are full of anxiety and curiosity and anticipation of the future, fear of the future. But it's often said that, you know, God reveals himself in facts. Mm. You know, there's nothing more factual than what is in front of you right now in practical and objective terms to address. Everything else is the future. It's a phantom. That's amazing. And I think, you know, you and I were talking off the air that the traditional world is not immune to the suicidal thought, everybody knows under this lockdown, suicide's taking more death than COVID. God rest the souls of those who died of COVID and suicide, of course, but statistically, the lockdown's leading to more suicides than even COVID deaths. And as you look around, clearly, even strong Catholics are not immune to these feelings. How do we live under lockdown? How do people, you know, live at their homes? Obviously, drinking is way up, drug use is way up. And Boy, I think if my listeners are going to walk away from this podcast, just memorizing two words, I love mnemonics. So I've already put it into a mnemonic of CC, compartmentalize the challenge. So I know people finish podcasts. I usually can't even remember two days later uh, the things I hear on a podcast. So if you want to memorize listeners, a, a mnemonic, compartmentalize the challenge. I think that's just the best advice for facing life right now under lockdown, because you're right, Mike, I, I, I lay in bed and I'm like, okay, I got four hours of prayer as a hermit, uh, a bunch of emails I'm not going to get back to, a bunch of letters. I have to make a video and a blog and respond to these texts. And there's probably going to be one phone call emergency. And I'm like, I can't do it. Like, I can't do it. And then I just end up getting back to texts for the next two hours. And maybe I'll get half of that done. But I love that advice. If you can compartmentalize the challenge. Um, and by the way, I'm glad that Mike gave the basics of buds. I mean, that's kind of known in a facetious way is where they just try to drown you and see which guys don't get drowned. Right. Um, pretty, pretty rough training. It's highly, it's highly controlled, but when you're going through it, it appears like you're constantly at that edge, that fetal position I described earlier. Yeah. <laughs> wow. 80% attrition yeah. rate. And, um, it's interesting. Everybody always says, well, it's the heart, it's the mind that gets you through it. But obviously you have to have some physical prowess to get through it. It is, but it's uh, <clears throat> the thing about um, the physical aspect of SEAL training is everybody gets broken down to the same level pretty fast. So any advantage you had going in, uh -huh. it's, uh, it's, it's rapidly sort of leveled off. And then it becomes much more about your character, your will, your ability to work with you know, teammates. Okay. Character, that's it. How does Paul put it in Romans 5? He says, hope leads to endurance, endurance leads to character. Um, and I've studied that word in the Greek, character. I, I really like the fact that you do that. And then Paul links endurance to character. This seems to be what we're really missing, that endurance. And, you know, I think it's hard for modern man and modern woman to enter into endurance because you can just change careers in a heartbeat. You can change spouses in a heartbeat. You can change you know, what you're going to do uh, as far as like your parish ministry in a heartbeat. 
endurance is really hard, I think, for the modern man, because we're encouraged not to finish things through. Anything that you can add to that on how we're called to just finish the project also? Well, it's, it's a good insight that you have, Father. It's uh, Endurance is, is lacking and it's hard and it's even harder when the world off, offers so many easy distractions, digital distractions and others, uh, to persevere on something that's hard. I, um, you know, it's a, it's a deep question. Uh, I, I know easy answers. I, uh, you know, there's a, there's a training of the will, I guess, that comes into it, which is important. Uh, and, yeah. the, and, the, and the sort of the, the, the sequence that you laid out about uh, character and endurance, you know, you, you have to well, start at the beginning. And our conversation last hour had to do with um, how, unfortunately, our modern, especially, you know, male, modern man is, uh, is not, not receiving sort of formation at that most basic level. Yeah, you know, I gave up Facebook and Twitter for Lent. And you're smart. You're not even on those. But giving those up has really led me to see, wow, I'm just a lot more free in these things. And like I said, if I can just hold this resolution, I'm only going to get back to text at 8 p.m. Imagine how our day could be opened up. I was watching uh, Jocko Willink, that seal, and his co-host talk about it. And one of his co-hosts was really well, not really embarrassed. He was mildly embarrassed that he was sitting out in his car checking his cryptocurrency when he could have been in the gym working. And I thought, you know, someone like St. Paul, if he heard that, he would apply that to the spiritual life that, okay, instead of checking, you know, your Instagram or your TikTok or even getting back to texts, if that time could be in contemplative prayer or whatever else, okay, well, we're not all called to be monks, but everyone can make concrete resolutions. Like I said, maybe I'll just get back to all my texts at 8 p.m. So I think the task at hand can really be helped if we make concrete resolutions on our devices. Because I agree with you, Mike, it's, it's our devices that's destroying our our virtue, I believe. Um, very, very hard to, to stay virtuous. Um, Can anyone think of a text that they sent recently or had to get back to that actually had any that lasted more than 15 or 20 minutes in terms of its relevance? No, it has zero impact. It's easy to come, easy to go. It's just digits that fly off into nowhere. It yeah. has no impact. It has just so little impact on anything. No, every time I'm in an adoration chapel, someone has their phone on vibrate. They think vibrate isn't going to be heard by anybody because it's vibrate. And it's like, I still hear, and it, I don't say stuff anymore to people because it's, it's just everybody has it on. So I just go to quiet churches in my hermitage to pray. But when I used to say something to people about this, you know what the answer every time was? Well, I'm, I'm waiting. There might be an emergency. Well, I mean, if there's an emergency, you shouldn't be in the adoration shop. You should probably be in the hospital. But that, that line, I'm waiting, there might be an emergency. It never, the vibrate is never an emergency. Just turn your phone off for one hour of adoration, right? So you're right. It's like, we, we think it's super important stuff that's going to come through, but it's not. And these people didn't really mean it was an emergency. They just meant something mildly important might come through on their phone and they have to leave the adoration chapel for it. Guess what? Leaving the son of God uh, for a mildly important phone call is not worth it. Just keep it off when you go to adoration. That's how I see it. Not vibrate off. <laughs> I totally, I totally agree. You know, the weirdest thing I ever saw someone doing in an adoration chapel, it was South of Denver, big adoration chapel. There was a guy cutting his fingernails in there when I was in there. He was just kind of just, this was just his personal hygiene time. And I said, could you take care of your personal hygiene at home? And a couple of ladies looked at me like that was rude to say, but whatever. Um, that's what I asked him to do. So Mike, you know, on this topic of speaking out for reform of the church, 
Tell us your thoughts on tactical versus strategic decisions. What I mean by that is you mentioned earlier, like just having the courage in a restaurant to do the sign of the cross. There's a lot of priests who are afraid to speak up because they say, well, if I get suspended, then all you people lose the sacraments. And I think there's a lot of people in their jobs who say, well, if I do X, Y, or Z at my job, if I stand up for P, Q, or R, I'll lose it. And then my kids will be hungry. Okay. I get that prudence. I'm not going to say we should push against that and throw all caution to the wind and just be idiots. And so this is another one of those questions. I'm not giving you the best, but how do you draw the line between prudence in the workplace and courage? How do you draw the line in the priesthood between just prudence and recklessness, especially as we face these very, very humanly, never at the divine level of the church, but at the human level of the church, very unprecedented corruption. How do we speak up for the reform of the church while not becoming prideful or so reckless that we all lose our jobs and our faculties? You know, I probably like you, I spend some amount of time reviewing what, what Catholics say on their, um, on certain, you know, high profile blog sites, things. And, and, a, and a, a, a perennial question is what is to be done or, you know, what do we do now? So we've got the analysis, right? We've got the truth. We've got the analysis, right? We understand the situation. What do we do? And, you know, and almost everybody falls back to kind of the same two or three com- conclusions, you know, personal piety, um, you know, to, you know, make sure that, you know, you're growing in devotion and you're doing what you can control your family or your, your flock, you, uh, and, and leave everything else sort of in the hands of God. Um, and I really, I think that I can't really improve on that advice other than to say that every time God has saved his church, church, it is, it is through the raising up of saintly leaders, uh, and I think that's what we should look for next, because we only have so much power as lay people. Uh, you yeah. know, we can. <clears throat> ultimately, it's got to be the raising up of a you know of a, of a holy pope that will come. Uh, and until then, we we do what is put in front of us, even if it means you know saying saying grace and crack a barrel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, surrounded you know surrounded by whoever. Uh, but, uh, but let me try to be more specific about how much risk, where does the balance between risk and prudence in public life? Um, I, uh, tough question, no easy answer. Yeah. Uh, but I know that the answer is not to take no risk. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you must, there yeah. are certain cases when I think you that's must a great answer. Yep. Yeah. Speak out and say, you know, that is, that is wrong. That is disordered. That is wrong, immoral, sinful against divine law. You know, and, and if you don't like it, you can't tell me I'm wrong on any logical or, or uh, theological grounds. All you got to do is attack me ad hominem, uh, you know, and, and cancel me. If that's all you can do, that's, I'm Amen. not afraid of that. I am that's, not afraid of that. <laughs> that's great. And you're right. The, the Holy Ghost gift of counsel is going to be different for each person. The counsel is when you know what to do, think, say, act. And, and that's different. But I love how you say it. The notion that it's no risk applies to nobody. There's no way that everyone can come up with this excuse under the moral theology of consequentialism to eventually come to this point where they take no risks. So you're right. Um, there's going to be a risk for everyone to save their soul. Speaking of soul, oh, go ahead, Mike. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I was going to say, I, you know, I've made mistakes on the other end of the spectrum of wading into fights I didn't need to. But you know what? You know where <laughs> that came from? I can't believe it. 
<laughs> you know where that came from? That came from spiritual pride from wanting to show everybody how smart and right I was. Uh, and, yep. and, you, and you know what the result of that is? It's always bad. Mm. Right. So that, that gift of counsel that you describe yeah. uh, is it's such a discernment to understand when it's the time to speak up, but that time will come and okay. don't be afraid. That's great. That time will come. And it's an overused phrase, of course, but pick your battles, obviously. Yeah, um, that, you know. that's it. On this topic of salvation of souls, you know, one of the things I'm really impressed with the seals for is I think you maybe maybe you told me this uh, when we were on the East Coast together. I think you said something like, um, or maybe I heard this from another seal, so you can correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but you know, a lot of these military agencies, they, they really do their best and they're happy if they finish. But if you guys aren't successful in a mission, it is a failure, regardless of an A plus and effort. And I think right now there is a lot of talk, thankfully in the Catholic world of saving your own soul and spiritual warfare. It's amazing. Even outside the Latin mass world, everyone's talking about spiritual warfare. Everyone's interested in exorcisms. Everyone's interested in angels versus demons. And that's great. I'm not there's actually not a second part of my sentence saying that's a problem. That's actually really, really good. But there's still a sense that salvation's in the bag. My salvation's in the bag as long as I give the best effort. Now, without going in the direction of like Jansenism or, or rigorism, because you and I both love St. Therese right here. And in some sense, she really does teach us if we do our best and we're baptized and living in grace, we're going to be saved. Uh, but one thing about the seals is... You, you fight to win. You don't fight to do your best. Um, how do we take that to heart in the salvation of our souls uh, without being lazy and without being Jansenistic? I'm giving you questions with answers in the middle of it. So it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. To <laughs> but no, I could just but I can give you a perspective. I'll give you a little bit more color. And, and that's right. There is there's a big difference between how you feel about your performance and what the actual results of your performance are. That's the distinction you're trying to make. That's exactly sometimes right. sometimes yeah. tr sometimes it might be broken down into the idea of, you know, intentions versus outcomes. They can be different. Which should you be held accountable to your good intentions? The bad outcome or vice versa bingo but i but I'll, but I'll tell you you know it's you are you're absolutely right in that we i've been on missions in which we executed perfectly and we we failed we failed the mission for any number of reasons and i tell you what the the after action is brutal uh, we we walk out of there you know bloody in a figurative sense uh but you know talking to ourselves about where we where we messed up where we failed <laughs> transferring this idea of results i mean outcomes and results uh, to the spiritual life, I, I think uh, they are, you know, they're highly important. I think you will be held accountable to the results that you produced, either whether you um, intended them or they were unattended, unattended, but reasonably knowable. It's, it is a, it is a difficult path, a dangerous path to go down where, hey, as long as I try and I, I meant well, I'm not really responsible for what happens. You can see where that leads. Bingo. Yep. Because, you know, everybody knows the definition, not everybody, but any Catholic who studied at Franciscan University 101 knows a mortal sin has to be done with full knowledge, full consent of the will, and it has to be grave matter. And even though that is a classic definition of mortal sin, for most of the church's history, the emphasis was put on the third part, which is objective, grave matter, where Nowadays, there's places in the country that have forgotten about the grave matter, the objective, and it's only that you knew it was wrong. Okay, again, I'm not going to revamp the definition of a moral sin, done with full knowledge, full consent of the will, and it's grave matter. But again, before 1900, 
the thing that everyone talked about in mortal sin on that was the grave matter, not the subjective side. So I'm just backing up what you're saying about there that the, you know, the outcome, the results, the after action plan primarily looks at the object, not the subjective approach to it with intentions. It might be a Protestant phrase, good intentions paved the way to hell. Uh, but I think it was actually Catholic before it was Protestant. And so um, not that we want to go down the road of Jansenism or, or, or God's looking for reasons for us not to be saved. But I think you're exactly right. We have to put the objective of the moral life, uh, the, not the subjective feelings or even intention. We need to recenter on the objective act, the objective deed, the objective virtue or sin that we're doing as the primary thing that we're looking at once we've established that relationship with Christ. In parallel, so this change, this change in, the, in the way people approach uh, grave matter versus, uh, versus intention and the execution of a mortal sin is kind of parallels how this social cultural shift from, you know, from objective views, from you know, objectivism, if that's a word, uh, to this kind of emotional relative or relativistic view of life, internal focused. Uh, so it's exactly parallel in culture, which came first, the culture or the, or the, or the, or the sort of the dogmatic uh, yeah. approach to it, I don't know. But. I think it was Cardinal Manning. I, I always hear Michael Knowles quote, I think it was a Cardinal Manning, he says, culture is downstream of theology. So I do think that, um, you know, the world is going to follow where the Catholics go. Father Wolf, I think, who used to be in the fraternity, he is in the fraternity of St. Peter. He says, all graces and all errors excuse me, all graces and all errors flow from the altar. Well, that's a really interesting notion. We all know all graces flow from the altar, but if also all errors flow from the altar, what does that mean about our current world full of sterilization, contraception, abortion, masks, communism everywhere? You know, it makes you start to wonder, wow, if we want to reform the world, it has to begin with us priests at the altar doing the right thing. I think you're on solid ground there. <laughs>